this guy came into the club one day and I was sitting there and I was doing some paperwork. And he says, who's the guy that's in charge over here? So I says, I am, what can I do for you? I walked over to him. Next thing I know, he cracked me and you can see the scar right here. He cracked me across the head with a pistol. Beat the shit out of me. He hit me in the head, I was a bloody mess. He knocked the shit out of me, this guy. I managed to get in the car at 16 years old, I was driving. My cousin Mac had given me an Electra 225 limited car to drive, I had no license. I drove down to 30th Avenue and Carroll Street and when I made the turn, I crashed into the wall of the Diplomat Lounge. Everybody came running out, they thought I got shot. They took me up to Methodist Hospital. They were patching me up out of state a couple of days and I told my uncle, I'm sorry, I told my cousin what happened and everybody. Just rest up at home. When we rested up, he says, come on, he says, Joe Colombo wants to see you. Brought me down to 3rd Avenue, Joe Colombo came down. He says, listen, he says, I'm going to take care of this for you. I said, all right, Joe, I appreciate it. My cousin looked at me and he calls me over him. Carmine and all the guys come over, they said, listen, if Joe Colombo takes care of this for you, that means you're his man. He owns you. You can't do nothing unless he says so. And if he don't want you made, you're never going to get made. He says, well, what do I do? He said, but if you handle it yourself, that means you belong over here with us. You're one of us. You can get made. You can do what you want to do. I've been making podcasts for a few years now. Mostly shows where sports fans argue with each other about what's wrong with the game and how they'd fix it. Every so often you come across a story or a person that's just so fascinating you simply have to know more. We were fortunate enough to come across Anthony Raimondi and he was willing to be interviewed to create a podcast detailing his incredible life, as he tells it, firsthand. This is his extraordinary and possibly true life story. I'm Rob Crawford. This is The Enforcer. At first glance, Anthony Ramondi doesn't look like the kind of guy who has killed many men. He sits comfortably in a filler tracksuit, a thick handlebar moustache across his face, rings displayed on his fingers, and a pair of glasses to help his slowly deteriorating vision. If you walk past Anthony on the streets of New York, you might think he had a bit of swagger for someone of his age, but it's unlikely you'd think about him twice. Little would you know the crazy life that this man has lived. I was born in, uh, in Brooklyn. I was born in Swedish Hospital on October 12th, 1953, to my mother Mary and my father Frank. And the day that I was born, my uncle Lucky Luciano came back into the United States. My uncle Ralph was there, Maya Lansky was there, Frank Costello, Anil Della Croce, Carmine Galenti, Carlo Gambino was there, all the guys were there. Because my both grandfathers were in what they called the Black Hand. My father's brothers were involved in the organized crime. My father, who I thought was a legitimate guy, but that's another story I found out later on. My father was not that legitimate as I thought he was. And uh, my cousin, Hugh McIntosh, who at that time, when he started out, he was, he's half Irish and half Italian. And he was the top enforcer to the Colombo family. And I was underneath him as I was coming up throughout the years, they groomed me underneath him. The only reason why they didn't make him is because he was half Irish. But he had all the power of a captain in the family especially the way my cousin Mac was. 
And uh, I have Uncle Danny Salenti also. And, you know, my whole family's been in organized crime since, uh, since God knows when, since it started. The roots of the Black Hand can be traced back to the 1700s in Naples and over hundreds of years spread throughout Italy. Decades of migration across to America would ensue as the Italians brought with them their iconic food, drink, music and clothing, to name just a few. Organised crime followed. By the 1900s, Black Hand operations were firmly established by Italian-American communities in the US. Nobody chooses where they are born or who their parents are. So when you are born into one of the most high-profile crime families in American history, you don't really have a choice, do you? When I was about nine years old, Uncle Lucky came into the United States and he was staying at the house we had on Baltic Street. It was my grandfather's house. It was an eight-family walk-up. It was a cold water flat, but it was all family lived in there. My Uncle Frank and my Aunt Palmer, my Uncle Jack, my Uncle Tom, my mother and father, my Uncle Frank, my Aunt Nitty, it was all family. Uncle Lucky used to come down and he always took me with him. No matter where he went, I always went with him. If he went to a meeting, I went with him. If he went here, no matter where he went, I went with him. And he used to look at me and he used to say, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be like you. I want to be like my uncles. One day I was watching the t- I was watching the television, some cop show or whatever. And the first time I heard the term, um, I heard the term wise guy. And I didn't know, then I seen when they were talking, they were talking about the mafia and everything. So again, Uncle Lucky, he always used to ask me, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be a wise guy. So he says, what? He said, where'd you hear that? I said, on TV, so let me explain something to you. He says, this, I'm going to tell you what, we are gangsters. He says, we're not wise guys. We're not made guys. He says, we're not friends. He goes, we're gangsters. He says, you know what that means? I says, no. He says, we do what the fuck we want to do. We have our own organization. We do what we want to do. They can call it anything they want. We are gangsters. In New York, the five families controlled the majority of organized crime. The Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchese families. To keep order between the five families, a commission was established so that democratic decisions could be made between the bosses of each family. The man who founded the commission was Charles Lucky Luciano, boss of the now-named Genovese family and uncle to Anthony, the enforcer. Charles Luciano is seen as the founder of the modern American mafia, and you don't get given the nickname Lucky for no reason. But he was the only man that ever survived the one-way ride. Now, one-way ride is when you go to meet a couple of guys. Yeah, come on, we're going to go for a ride. They whack you and you never come back. He's the only man that ever survived that. They tried that to do kill him on Staten Island. They shot him, they stabbed him, they broke some of his bones, and he still survived. And when he was better, he killed every fucking one of them. By him personally, he killed every one of them. As a young boy, surrounded by some of the most notorious and powerful mafia figures, it wouldn't take long until Anthony displayed his own violent and brutal nature. A simple argument in the schoolyard would turn into something much worse, and it all stemmed from his father's stern orders. No one would disrespect the Colombo family and get away with it. Yeah, but I was, I was went to St. Augustine Grammar School. 
I was a Catholic school on Sterling Place in Brooklyn. I was in about the seventh grade. I was in the seventh grade. And I had this guy, Raymond Cicerillo, that used to sit behind me. And he had a brother named Anthony, another brother named Rocco, and a brother named Stephen. Rocco and Stephen were nice guys, but Anthony and Raymond thought who the fuck they were. This guy used to sit in back of me, Raymond, and he was sticking me with something sharp. And I used to turn around and I'd stop it. So I kept going on and on. It was a pin. And he thought it was a joke. And every time I turned around, I'd go to say something or whatever, the nun would grab me and start giving me that headache. I come home and St. Augustine had to wear a white shirt. So I'm home one day and my mother says, what's this on your shirt? She sees blood. So I took the shirt off and had a t-shirt on. There was blood on there. I, said, I don't know, I don't know what it was. So my father grabbed me. He said, what the fuck is going on? I said, look, Pop, this guy, Raymond, says, he goes, I know them. I said, this is what he keeps doing me. He's sticking me with something. It's got to be a pin. He goes, how long has this been going on? It's about two weeks. I keep telling him to stop. But every time I turn around, I go, Sister Ann Michelle, she grabs me and I get freaking, I got to stand in the back of the classroom holding 40 pounds of books all fucking day long. Or she beats you in the palm of your hands with the steel ruler. I couldn't even pick up my hand. So my father turns around and he gave me a pocket knife, about this big. Then my father said, take this. I open it up, he goes, next time he sticks you in the back, you turn around, stab him. He says, don't worry about getting in trouble. He goes, stab this cocksucker. All right, next day I'm in the classroom and I had the thing, I had the thing in my pocket. This guy I said, stop it. I pulled it out and I put it in my hand this way. I said, Raymond, stop it. I turned around like this and I stabbed him right in the fucking arm. Right in the fucking arm. Blood, blood, I stabbed him, pulled fucking bloodshot all over the place. Sister Ann Michelle almost took three fucking heart attacks, and then they had the cops there and everything. Cops came, they had me there, and they got in touch with my father. My father came up, and said, you know, I'm going home with my father. Cops were going to let her go, because they were all on the take. All the cops were on the take. They were getting paid off. They were getting an envelope every week. You fuck with one of us, you don't get your envelope no more. What are they going to do? How are they going to pay all their bills then? Because these cops were extravagant. They bought Cadillacs, new houses. Back then, on a cop's salary, you weren't able to pay for all of this. But when you get an envelope, nice envelope every week to watch out for us and make sure, you know, nothing happens. Once that stops, you think they're going to they think they're gonna like it, especially the captain of the precinct or the inspector? Never happened. Make a long story short, we got word from the DA's office that they were going to press charges on me, uh, that uh, Ramos and Cirillo's family was going to press charges because I stabbed them. They didn't want to hear nothing that he was sticking me with the pin. Well, my cousin Mac heard about it, too. And he didn't take it too lightly. And Maya heard about it. Next thing you know, like a day later, charges are dropped. We're not pressing no charges. We don't want no nothing. The principal of the school, uh, Sister St. You, her name was, says, oh, Anthony, you're coming back to school. Don't worry about it. And they stuck me back in the class with Sister Michelle. I saw Uncle Frank Costello. I called my uncle because he was older than me, but it's my grandfather's cousin. I says, what happened? I says, all of a sudden, all this was dropped. He says, yeah. He says, how did it all get dropped? He says, well, you know, Uncle Maya, he goes, and me, it was your cousin Mac, we got together. A couple of guys went to the house to speak with, uh, with Raymond's father and his mother. I says, yeah. He goes, at first, they didn't want to listen. I says, so how did you get them to listen? He says, well, when, uh, when Mac put the barrel of the gun down the husband's mouth, then they decided to listen. One of the other guys that was with my cousin Mac put the gun to the wife's head. They said, you're going to do this, we're well, not going to do nothing ever again. And they said, nope, there ain't no charges being pressed over here, and that was it. Anthony had learned a valuable lesson that day. His family could make things disappear. And, in some scenarios, they were above the law. Over the next few years, Anthony struggled at school. But where he was excelling was on the streets. 
an ordinary 12-year-old would be playing basketball or baseball with their friends. Anthony, he spent time with gangsters, learning the ways of the underworld. I was being brought down to the club by my cousin Mac, and I was seeing me. I was introduced to all the other guys in the family that were there. I just hung out, did a little sweep in here and there, mop up the floor, the bathroom, or whatever, and just getting. They were giving me like a feel of the place, how it operates, who's you know, who's what and who's who. You could pick it up right away. You knew when a certain like when Joe Colombo walked in, you knew this guy was the boss, just by the way everybody went to him. And that's the first time I heard the. the words like lieutenant and captain and skipper and all that stuff was when I started going down there. By the age of 16, he was already managing a spot in town, making money for the family through various gambling and loan deals. But in this world, when you're making good money, someone else wants a slice of the pie. Well, I got a spot from Joe Colombo. He's put me in a place in Bay Ridge. It was called the Cadabra Club. It was right on 80, It was right on 3rd Avenue between 85th and 86th. As you go in... They'll bring you the Shylock money, the numbers money, the horse money, the numbers money. He goes, you pick it up, bring it down to 3rd Avenue and Cal Street, you bring it up to 5th Avenue every night. He goes, you'd get your end, and we turn everything over with all the slips. No problem. I was going good with it. Because he liked me, Joe, and I was doing the right thing at, at an early age. This guy came into the club one day, and I was sitting there, and I was doing some paperwork. And he says, who's the guy that's in charge over here? I says, I am. What can I do for you? I walked over to him. Next thing I know, he cracked me, and you see the scar right here. He cracked me across the head with a pistol. <laughs> Beat my, hit me in the head. I was a bloody mess. He knocked the shit out of me, this guy. I managed to get in the car. At 16 years old, I was driving. My cousin Mac had given me an electric 225 limited car to drive. I had no license. I drove down to 30 Avenue in Carroll Street, and when I made the turn, I crashed into the wall. Everybody came running out. They thought I got shot. With that, they pulled me into the hospital. They kept me there. My cousin Mac and them were coming up and seeing me. After about a week, they sent me home. My cousin says, rest up a couple more days. There's nothing's going on. I was home maybe about four days. And he says, come on, I'm going to take you down to 3rd Avenue. He says, Joe wants to see you. It was Joe Colombo. So all right. My cousin Mac picks me up. and We get in the car. We drive down to 3rd Avenue and Cal Street. But we went to Monty's restaurant. Joe Colombo's sitting in there. I walk in. Joe looks at me, gives me a hug, gives me a kiss. He's turning my head like this, looking at my face. Says, how you feel? Yeah, I'm feeling all right. He tells me, he says, listen, I'm going to take care of this thing with this Sally Burns. He says, don't worry about it. If I looked at him, I said, all right, Joe, I appreciate it. Yeah, I didn't think nothing of it when he said it. He says, I'll have it taken care of. With that, he orders a drink. He says, give him a drink. And we had something to eat. We're getting something to eat. My cousin Mac calls me over to the table. There was Mac. There was Allie Boyd, Jerry Lang, Scappy was there. I said, sit down, we want to talk to you. I said, what's up? I said, listen, if Joe Colombo handles this for you, everybody's going to know you belong to him. You're his man. You can't get, you can't do nothing unless Joe gives you the okay. And if the day comes that you're supposed to get made, you can't get made unless he says so. If he says no, it's no. If he says you can't do it, you can't do nothing. He says, but if you handle it yourself, whatever way you see fit, you handle it yourself, then everybody's going to know you belong down here with, one of, with us. You're one of us. And you can do what you want to do. And then when it comes time for you to get made, you get made. I said, all right. So I walked over to Joe and I says, Joe, can I talk to you for a second? He said, yeah, what do you want? I said, Joe, I appreciate everything you want to do for me. I said, but I feel I should take care of this myself. He looked at me, Joe Colombo. He says, are you sure? I said, I'm positive. I got to take care of this myself. He got up. 
He hugged me, kissed me, he says, anything he wants, give him anything he wants. With that, I told my cousin, I'm going to go over and see Sally D. I got the bug in my head, I want to get a gun, because this guy had a gun on him. Now, my friend Sally D., his family, and Joey D., they had a bar on Union Street and 3rd Avenue called the Union Street Bar. When you walked in, the ground level was a bar. You went downstairs, there was a basement. Then you had a sub-basement. The sub-basement was loaded with, I mean, you had you named the weapon that was on the wall. This guy had fucking bazookas. He had machine guns, shotguns, everything. His whole family were all gun runners. They were all arms dealers. I mean, but they had Shylock businesses and everything, but their big thing was weapons. This guy could get you, if you t gave him uh, like a day or two, he'd get you a fucking jet. So I went down there and I seen Joey and I told Joey, you know, well, he says, I heard what happened with you and this uh, Sally Burns. I says, yeah, I said, Joey, you know what? I want to get a gun. You know, I want to just make sure I have something with me. He says, come on, let's go down to the sub base. We went down, gave me a Picho 380 Beretta from Italy. 13 shot clip magazine in there. He says, try shooting. That's right, he showed me what to do with the gun. I got and I started shooting. And he looks at me because he had targets down there. I hit the target like 12 out of 13 shots. I hit a dead center. He goes, you never shot a gun before? I said, no. Because you're telling me the truth. I said, Joey, you fucking know me since we were kids. We're babies together. You know, I never shot this first time shooting a gun. He gives me a whole box of shells. He goes, go ahead, shoot your heart out. He goes, go ahead. I hit the target and kill shots all over the chest and the head. I goes, no. And he looked at me and his uncle came in. And Sally comes in. And he says, you did? I says, yeah, I did all that. He goes, you never shot a gun. I said, Sally, I never shot a gun. He's all noticed. He says, gun's a gift. He says, take it. He says, you're natural to this. He says, you're total natural. He gives me the gun in the box of shelves. I got in the bag and I'm walking over from Union Street to Carroll Street. My cousin Max says, we're going to drop you off. He says, all right. So I get in the car. He goes, what's in the bag? So I pulled out the Beretta. He, he gave me a crack in the fucking head. I dropped the gun. He goes, what are you, fucking nuts? He says, you ain't got a license to carry it. Goes, what are you doing with a gun? I said, when I go to see this guy, Sally Burns, I said, I'm going to take it with me. Just, you know, to scare him. And that's what I thought I was going to do, scare him. He says, all right. That Friday night comes. I got all dressed up and everything. I got the Beretta loaded. And I knew what to do with the gun. I put it in the car. And I go down to 3rd Avenue to see everybody down on 3rd Avenue. My cousin says, what's going on? I said, I'm going to go down to Bay Ridge. I'm going to see the Sally Burns. He says, all right. Joe Colombo was there. Everybody was there. So I hop back in the car and I drive to 3rd Avenue and I park. I park like across the street from the club. As I'm walking across, I see Dookie. He was the bartender. You know, he had a beard, long hair. And he goes, Auntie, what are you doing here? I said, I came to see Sally Burns. Why? He goes, get out of here. This guy's fucking crazy. He's going to kill you. He's been shaking down the place. He's robbing money out of the register. I said, don't worry about it. I said, I talked to him. I said, I'm going to straighten this all out. Now I figure when I get in there, I'm going to talk to him. If he gets smarter, well, I'm just going to pull the gun out and put it to his face just to scare him and he would leave. I walk in. Now, when you walked into the place, there was a long bar, about 40 feet, the bar. And then it came to an L like this, to this left side, and there was a dance floor to the right. I'm walking down, I'm looking for him, I don't see him. I make the turn, there he is, he's got his back to me, and he's talking to this girl, Karen Scoos, I remember, she came from my neighborhood, beautiful blonde. She's standing up, and he's sitting down with his back to me. I seen her bend down, I heard her say, Anthony's behind you, because the music went down. This guy jumps up, you cocksucker, you motherfucker, what I tell you, your mother's gonna have to have a close coffee for you, and he whips out his jacket. When he opened up his jacket, I already had the bullet in my hand. 
and I seen that gun sticking in his waistband. He grabbed the gun like this. He grabbed it and started pulling out of his waistband. I just raised my hand. I didn't think twice, but I just started firing. I had the fucking clip in his head. Karen started screaming. I turned around. I walked the help. Somebody in the club yelled, they're shooting, and the people were running out. I got back in the car, drove down to 3rd Avenue. I stopped on Hamilton Avenue, where the canal is. There's an area where you can put your car underneath the highway. I did that, and I got and I took the gun apart, and I threw it all in the water, like my cousin taught me. You use a gun until you get rid of it. Take it apart, you get rid of it. Got rid of the gun, get back in the car, and I go back down to 3rd Avenue. I go into the diplomat that we had on the corner of Carroll and 3rd, and Joe Blub, the bartender, says, where is everybody? Because they're down at Monty's. I walk down Monty's. Everybody's in there. So my cousin goes to me, he goes, what are you doing here? He goes, I thought you went to settle this thing with Sally Burns. I said, I did. He says, what happened? I said, I shot him. He says, what do you mean you shot him? I said, I shot him. I said, I think I killed him. He says, what do you mean you think you killed him? I said, well, I emptied the whole clip into his head. He tried to pull a gun on me. With that, everybody looked at me like, there's something, you know, this guy just killed a guy and he walked in here. Joe Colombo sent little Vincent down to the place on Carroll Street, on, uh, on 30 Avenue between 85th and 86th, the Cadaver Club. Vincent walks in, whatever, comes back about an hour. Turns around, he tells Joe Colombo, he goes, the guy's dead, he goes, he doesn't have a fucking head. He says, if you looked at the body, you couldn't tell if it was a man or woman, there's no head. He says, so Joe Colombo looked and he tells everybody, go, look at this fucking kid. He's sitting there like calm as a cucumber. He just blew a fucking guy's brains out and he's sitting there. So he says to me, you all right? I say, yeah, I'm fine. He says, Does that, no, nothing bothers me, why? He says, all right, he says, give him a drink. He said, this kid belongs to us. He said, he's definitely one of us. My cousin Matt came over, Alley Boy, Jerry. They said, you're definitely one of us. You belong over here with us. And that's how I got started. One of us. Anthony was now a mafia man. This was only just the beginning of his life as a gangster. But when the crimes get more serious, so do the repercussions. I had gotten picked up in January of the following year for this deal with Sally Burns. And what happened, Abraham Gritz, who was my attorney at the time, he worked it out with the DA that I would get a year and a half for one, discharging a uh, unlicensed firearm in the city limits and for carrying one because it was my first offense. So he made the deal and I figured that'd be good. I'm gonna go away, I'll do a year and a half. My cousin Mac and them were going away on the hijack and I'd be home before them. And I could just start, you know, pick up the business and keep everything going. He'd run it until he went away. Then I would pick it up when I came home. We piled into Jerry's car the next day. Jerry Lang had a big ass blue, uh, the blue Lincoln Continental four door thing like a fucking boat. And if we had propellers on this, we could take it across the ocean. Me, Mac, Scappy, Jerry Lang, Joe Colombo, we all piled in the car. And we're going down now to take the take the plea, and then I'll stop my bit right there. Go, just go and get it over with. We're driving down Atlantic Avenue. We turn on the boring place to go to the lawyer's office. We're maybe 50, 60 feet in from the corner. Four cars converge on us all around the place. Now, we knew it wasn't a hit because these guys came out with badges. They come out, pull inside the car. Joe Colombo screaming at them. The fuck's wrong with you guys? What's going on? Then one of them says, I got him. He's over here. So I look at him. The fucking got what? What the fuck are you talking about? The agent comes over to me, he goes, Anthony Raimondi, I said, yeah, he goes, we got you for the civil rights violation of Salvatore Burns. I looked at him, I said, fuck this guy, not civil rights violation. I didn't beat up no black guy, I didn't beat up no Puerto Rican guy, I'll kill him. What the fuck's wrong with him? Joe Colombo's looking at him, what the fuck's going on? 
they take me to Federal Plaza. The guy Abraham Gritz comes in, and I see Abraham Gritz, and he tells me, "Listen," he says, "this charge they have you on means it carries a 99-year sentence with a possibility of no parole." From seemingly untouchable to a charge with a 99-year prison sentence. The life of a gangster had caught up with Anthony very quickly. Next time on The Enforcer. I got hit once, I got hit twice. So he says, block me, block me. So I went and blocked him and instinctively I hit him. Worst fucking mistake I ever made. He, I, next thing I knew, I was on my fucking ass, and he had his foot on my toe over here. And I'm looking up at him. I'm saying to myself, "This is a big fucking mistake." The Enforcer is a Podular Media production in conjunction with 360 DMG and recorded at Carpe VM Studios, New York. All music copyright is owned by Epidemic Sound. Narration, storyboarding, and audio production by Rob Crawford. Scripting and storyboarding by Adrian Horton. Interviewing and research by Robert Huxley. On-site recordings from Charles De Benedictis, Rod Marcus, Rod Nunez, and Jeff Rao. The Enforcer is based on When the Bullet Hits the Bone, the amazing and possibly true life story of the last Mafia Enforcer. All accounts and claims are that of Anthony Raimondi.